Good morning. It's Friday, August 20th. I'm Duarte Geraldino. And I'm Shemita Basu. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. At the Kabul airport, there's growing chaos. Thousands of people are pushing to get out of the country. The Washington Post is reporting Taliban fighters have blocked and beaten some people who are trying to get out. The reality is, many may not be able to leave Afghanistan. To see what life looks like for everyone left behind, we reached out to Ali Latifi. He's an online correspondent for Al Jazeera English based in Kabul. It's walking on eggshells. You know, every day it's like, is this going to be the day that I break the final taboo? You know, that, that I'm going to get in trouble for something. Like, my, my cell phone ringtone is a Post Malone song, you know? And sometimes I'm like, if, uh, you know, if they hear that, will they get upset? Like, for instance, I used to walk on the street with AirPods on. You know, I'm afraid to do that now. You know, I used to mostly wear, like, jeans and T-shirts and hoodies and things like that. I haven't done that in the past four or five days that they've been in power, you know? There are some men that fear that they're going to have to grow a beard again. The Taliban recently said it will respect women's rights within its own interpretation of Islamic law, but it has a long history of oppression. And in Afghan provinces where the Taliban has been in control for much of the past year, women have largely retreated from public life. Latifi says women in Kabul are now going outside much less. For older women, it's hang-ups and fears from, you know, when they were alive during the Taliban's initial period where, you know, a woman couldn't go out alone. She had to wear a chadari or, or what the West calls a burqa. Uh, you know, she could be subject to uh, beatings on the street, to, you know, being detained on, on false charges of, I don't know, going out inappropriately or, you know, not going out with a proper, proper guardian or companion. Latifi told us Afghans knew this withdrawal would come, but they take issue with the way the U.S. did it. The truth is most people in Afghanistan were already over the U.S. presence a long time ago and were were ready for it to end for a long time. But what angered people is that Joe Biden left without setting any conditions. And I get it, he doesn't like this war. A lot of people don't like this war. But just because you don't like a war doesn't mean you should take that out on a country of 32 million people that are suffering and have suffered for decades. International scammers are stealing tens of billions of dollars worth of pandemic unemployment benefits. NBC News has the story of how criminals have been exploiting systems put in place to help struggling Americans get aid faster. States are in charge of distributing unemployment benefits. And for years, analysts have been warning that the existing unemployment verification systems are vulnerable. So far, law enforcement has been able to recover only a fraction of the stolen benefits. Meanwhile, some Americans who could be claiming those benefits are finding hackers have already taken the money in their name. I spoke to Ken Delanian from NBC about this story. We looked at one slice of COVID relief fraud, which is a fraud against the unemployment relief funds. The federal government allocated almost a trillion dollars, over $900 billion in various 
supplemental unemployment relief programs to reflect the massive amount of joblessness that happened during the pandemic. And the amount of money that was stolen from that sum is staggering. The estimates range from a low of $87 billion, that's the Department of Labor's Inspector General, to a high of $400 billion. Mm. That's the estimate of a company called ID.me, which has contracts in 27 states, and they're actually looking at the data. So tell us about the people who are running these scams. Where are they located? Criminals in nearly every country in the world, we are told, but principally Nigerian criminal gangs, Russian organized crime, and Chinese hackers. These are transnational criminal organizations that engage in other kinds of crime, human trafficking, drugs, other kinds of cyber fraud. And we've now, the United States taxpayer has now enriched them to an incredible degree. What is it about our existing systems for claiming benefits that make them so vulnerable to cybercrime? It starts with states having antiquated computer systems. They're running, in many cases, 1980s technology. Just so people understand, this is federal money, but state agencies administer unemployment programs and cut the checks Mm -hmm. to unemployed people in each state. So you're relying on the state systems, and they are terrible. And they essentially had no way to verify identities if a criminal was able to come up with a legitimate American social security number, driver's license number, you know, birth dates, other kinds of information, which is for sale in bulk, again, on the dark web. I mean, it's easy for people to get because of all these hacks and breaches that you've read about. The states were basically unable to distinguish between what was real and what was fake, and they were just cutting the checks. Mm. And it got so bad, some states had to suspend their unemployment programs for weeks. And so... Now, that's changed a little bit because they've brought in firms like ID.me, which have instituted additional checks like selfie verification, where they require you to actually get on the phone or on FaceTime and prove that your face matches the driver's license that's been submitted. Mm. But criminals have tried to beat that, too. They've tried to wear masks, for example. You told the story of one person who lost their job during the pandemic and tried to file for these supplemental unemployment benefits only to find that her benefits had already been claimed. So what happens for people like her? People like Yvonne Matlock, who we interviewed, you know, who lost her job and applied for benefits and was told, no, you've already gotten benefits. What that results in is a month-long odyssey to try to prove to the state that in fact you were defrauded and now the real you is trying to get the real benefits that you're owed. So those people are often subject to delays when they badly need the benefits. Ken Delanian, national security correspondent for NBC News. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Thanks. Black women in the U.S. are nearly four times more likely than white women to die during childbirth. Some birth workers attribute that statistic to racial inequities in health care. And they're encouraging black mothers to, quote, have black hands catch your baby. The L.A. Times takes us into one of the few black-owned birthing centers in the U.S. One of the center's founders explains how when she had her first child, and this was in the 90s, it was hard to find a black midwife. That's part of what drove Kimberly Durden to decide to become a midwife herself, to help other women bring their children into the world. Becoming a licensed midwife is a long process. California requires years of classes, training, and an exam. It took Durden around a decade to get through it all. And now she runs the birthing center with a partner. 
Right now, the number of babies being born outside of a hospital is still relatively small compared with hospital births, but they've been rising. One maternal specialist tells the LA Times, research shows women with low-risk pregnancies fare better working with midwives rather than obstetricians. They're less likely to be induced or delivered by C-section. You can listen to a narrated version of this LA Times article. It's available as an audio story on the Apple News app. Just tap the notification we send you midway through the show or search for Apple News Today in the app. If I bring up daddy long legs, do you feel a little phantom tickle on your ankle? Maybe you're a little freaked out by them, but don't let that stop you from taking in this cool science story. NPR tells us about a group of researchers that used cutting-edge techniques to create what they're calling a daddy short legs. The scientists explain one unique thing about daddy long legs is what they can do with their legs. You know how your fingers have a couple of joints that enable you to make a fist? Well, this creature's legs have dozens of small joints that make it possible for them to curl and grab things. To figure out where this special ability came from, researchers sequenced its genome. And when they did that, they were able to manipulate the genes in a way that let them create a daddy short legs. A daddy long legs with shorter legs than usual. And this breakthrough is a key step in understanding how these special creatures evolved. And while we're on the topic, daddy long legs, they won't hurt you. Vanessa Gonzalez is one of the study's authors, and she explains how it's just a myth. They're not venomous. They don't even bite. She says, if you see one in your house, try to be nice. And if you really don't want to see it, gently put it outside. You can find all these stories and more in the Apple News app. And check out our weekend interview show, In Conversation. This week, I sit down with Craig Whitlock. He's a reporter at The Washington Post and the author of the upcoming book, The Afghanistan Papers, A Secret History of the War. You can't help but come to the conclusion that this was intentional deception uh, designed to just make the American people think that the war was progressing and things were going well, when in fact, uh, many U.S. officials had already come to the conclusion that it was an unwinnable war. And if you like our show, please review it in the podcast app. We'll be back with the news on Monday. Monday.